Well, if you want to grab a Bible, turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 21. After Labor Day, we're going to start a new series moving through the book of 1 John. And so as a way of introduction, uh, we're going to do a few weeks uh, this week, not next week, but the week after that. You with me on that? Uh, we're going to do a few introductions of First John through the life of John, the man who wrote it, an apostle, uh, a disciple of Jesus. And so we're going to do that today. John chapter 13, verse 21. This is what it says. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said, What you are going to do, do quickly. So John is known here as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what 1 John will be about, about God's love. That's what the whole life of John really comes down to, that he was known and knew himself as someone who Jesus loved. Now, love, we all have our experiences with it. Amanda and I met doing a summer internship when we were in college, and we fell in love very quickly, but we're not weird, so we didn't say it very quickly, you know, because if you just say the L-bomb really quickly, that's a sure way for the relationship to end very quickly. So we're smart, so we have all the feelings of love all summer long, but we're not saying that because we're normal human beings. We talked about it. We talked about when it would be appropriate to say things because we weren't denying these very real feelings. And and so what I said, because I'm incredibly masculine, was, listen, I have to take the risk of asking you to marry me so you can take the risk of uh, telling me that you love me first. So you break the ice and then I'll do the engagement part. I feel like that's fair. And so that was the deal we had come up on. And we had fallen in love that summer. And the summer was coming to an end. So I had to go back to Missouri where I was going to college. And she was staying here in Texas where she, was going to, to, where she went to college. And so uh, it was a very emotional goodbye. One of us wept. I'm not going to tell you who because I love myself. And, uh, and I get in my car and I start driving back to Missouri. And I get about halfway up near the, the border of Texas, about halfway from here to my hometown in Missouri. And I'm just overwhelmed with all these feelings that I have for this girl. I had never felt uh, this way about anybody before. I had actually told a girl that I loved her when I was in the eighth grade because we had been dating for a week and I could feel her slipping away. And so I thought the way to preserve the relationship was to tell her that I loved her. And I did. Listen, it doubled the relationship from one week to two weeks and then she ended it. So I had never really had any kind of experience with real love. And I just have all these feelings. And, and so I, I want to call her to check in just to let her know how I'm doing. And I wanted to talk to her because I was in love. And so I pulled out my Nokia. You remember the Nokia, the bar phone? I pulled it out with the amazing snake game. And, uh, and so I, I pull it out, and, I, and I'm 
and I'll, and I'll call, her, call her number, and uh, she doesn't answer, and that's fine, because I'm going to leave a message. And listen, this message was just sap. I mean, it was just, I've had such an amazing summer, and I can't wait to the future, blah, blah. The kind of thing that if somebody played it back for you, it'd be like, oh my gosh, I am such a moron. But I'm just expressing all these feelings about how excited I am about our relationship, and, uh, and I'm getting ready to end, and I go, I love... And just cut it off because, oh my gosh, we weren't supposed to say this. This is out of bounds. That's the L word. And I was unsure about how clearly it came out. But I was definitely saying, I love you. I didn't mean to. It wasn't a big plan. It just came out. But I tried to pull it back. You know, you know those moments like, pull it, pull it back. And so I, I just hung up. I just ended the, the call right there. And so the message is, I love. And uh, it, it was over. And then we didn't talk about it for a long time because it was kind of the weird elephant in the room. And like a true man, I waited for a couple of months before she told me that she loved me, you know, because that was our deal. You've had experience like this, whether it's a relational love, whether it's a love that you have for your child, whether it's a love that you have a friendship or a parent. We all know what love feels like, what the experience is. We all know it's a good thing. And here's the question that we're asking today, because what I've found is I think it's easier to give love than to receive it. True love. I think, especially, especially for men, it's easier to give love than to receive it because there's a certain vulnerability that you have to have to receive love. And the question we're asking today, incredibly simple, is can you be loved? Because John, the person writing this gospel, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he was a person who was able to be loved. Can you be loved? Now, love is often said, often misunderstood, often it is vague, and it is easily dismissed if you are not in the mood to hear it, especially from men. A man can easily dismiss love because it sounds like romantic. I mean, even though the Scripture says at the end of either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Meaning, let him be cut off. Meaning, if you don't love Jesus this morning, the Apostle Paul is say to you and to me, you don't deserve to be here. Let you be cut off. You can't be a believer if you don't love Jesus. Now, most of us, especially us men, we're like, no, that's not primarily how I relate to God. I relate to him as a provider because I understand that and there's certain certain toughness to that. I relate to him as a as a truth teller. Because because I can relate to that, but love is is it's vague and it feels romantic and that feels weird to relate to God in that way, but I I just want to remind us of what love means. It's not just what we see on television. Being loved means you are accepted and not rejected. Being loved means that someone is proud to be related to you. Being loved means that you are looked out for, you are defended, you are forgiven. Being loved means you make someone happy. Being loved means you are cared for, you are understood, you are valued. Being loved means someone has your best interests in mind. Being loved means you are respected. Being loved means that you are known, you are protected, you are safe. And you are important. Being loved means that you are judged and seen according to your strengths and not your weaknesses. Being loved means someone thinks the best about you. So as we talk about the love of Christ today, we're not just talking about the kind of love that a man feels for a woman. We're talking about something that all of us can relate to. 
And all of us crave. Now, you may not say, I crave love. But every person in this room craves to be accepted, craves to be respected, craves to be valued, craves to be cared for. And those are the things that we're talking about today, and these are the things that John understood. Now, this scene that we have just jumped into the middle of, it's a Passover scene. It's, it's what is called the Last Supper because in, in just about 18 hours, Jesus will be dead. He will have been arrested, tried, convicted, beaten, and crucified. This is his final meal with his disciples before his resurrection. It's the Passover meal, um, which was a Jewish holiday, and they would, they would use this meal to retell the story of the Exodus from the, the Old Testament, how God delivered their ancestors out of Egypt. You can imagine having a story in your family about your great-great-grandparents and how they maybe came to America if every year you got together and uh, you just had a big meal to remember and retell that story, how your family ended up in Texas or, or whatever. That's what they would do. They so celebrated what God had done in their ancestors, that they remembered it over and over and over again. And so it was a formal meal, so there was a specific way that it had to be arranged. There were specific foods that they had to each and, uh, eat. And actually, uh, Peter and John are assigned by Jesus to go into Jerusalem to prepare the meal, to get the ingredients, to get the food, to arrange the room. And so here they are in the upper room on the, the evening before Jesus is going to be crucified. And the seating arrangement would have been a U shape and the tables would have been very low. Uh, they had normal tables and normal chairs just like we do. But for whatever reason, on this specific meal and some other key meals, holiday meals, they would all eat them on the floor at these low tables. And you could lean back on your left elbow and eat with your right hand sitting around in this U shape. And this is how you would remember the story of the Exodus. And at the Passover, the head of the family, whoever that was, the the elder of the room or the leader of the family would sit at the head table and they would be the one who would tell this story of the very first Passover. And the youngest person in the room who could kind of talk, we all have those two or three year olds that can kind of talk, but you wouldn't trust them. You know what I mean? Uh, The youngest person who could speak that could actually uh, do what you're asking to do would sit right next to the, the, the head of the family. And this person's job, this youngest person's job, was to ask questions that would spur on the story so that the, the father or the head of the family could tell this story. And, and so it says in the scripture here that John is actually sitting next to Jesus. Now, Jesus is clearly the head of this family of the disciples. So John is probably the youngest of all the disciples. And uh, we know he's sitting next to Jesus because he is reclining up against him. He's seated up against him. He's also the one who asked Jesus a question. You notice Peter uh, asked John to ask Jesus a question. Now, it's not a big room. And even in a room this size, if you really wanted to ask a question, don't because it would be super awkward. But, you know, we could hear you from all over the room. You wouldn't need to ask somebody closer to ask a question. So what that means is John, being the youngest, sitting next to Jesus at the head of the table, was the official question asker of that evening, which means John is the youngest. He's right there. They're celebrating the Passover. Judas is getting ready to betray Jesus, and it's going to set all the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection in motion. Now you notice John does not reference himself. He does not mention his own name. In fact, nowhere in the Gospel of John does he refer to himself by his own name or with a personal pronoun. 
He never says I. He never says we. When he wants to refer to himself, he only refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the very first time and four more times between right now and John chapter 14 to the end of this gospel will he refer to himself as that. This phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, became his identity. This is how he knows himself. When he thought about himself, years later, as he's recording the events of Jesus' life for the purpose of eternal life in his readers, he knows himself and sees himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, was he the only disciple that Jesus loved? Was he like, yeah, that's right. I get all the favor. You guys get leftovers. No. He wasn't saying I'm the best. He wasn't saying I'm the only disciple that Jesus loved. This is just how he saw himself. This says more to us about John than it does about Jesus. Any of the disciples could have said, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. But this is how he wrote his gospel. This is his identity. Now it says here in the scriptures that he's actually reclining up against Jesus. And depending on your translation, it says like leaning on him or laying on him. And now this is super weird. Maybe all the ladies in the room are going like, oh, that's sweet. And every man in here is like, whoa, that's weird. Like, is, it, like, is that a requirement to be a Christian? Like, I got to lay on another man, you know, my head on his chest. Like, that's weird. And, and, and I didn't even think about bringing it up, but it's like the elephant in the room for every male in here that, that John has laid up against him. It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it, to, to see that kind of closeness? A couple of things we need to remember. Number one, uh, John is very young, and this is more like a father and son relationship than a peer-to-peer relationship. The other thing that we need to remember is John fully believed that Jesus loved him. And that brings a certain level of I don't care into your life. And so it didn't really matter to John. He was going to do what he wanted to do. And so this is what he did. And years later, as he's writing his gospel, this still means something to him. He doesn't even bother to say his own name. He's just the disciple that Jesus loved. And, and I love the, the dichotomy, the two sides of Jesus that we see here in his last days. We see him letting John lean up against him. You know, I might have been like, mm, love you. Space, please. But he lets John do this. And then within 18 hours, we're seeing him endure torture that most of us would not have the guts or the strength to endure. So it's not an either-or thing with Jesus. It's, not a, it's either strength or tenderness. It's both, and we see both here in Jesus' last days. But can you be loved? The answer for John was yes. And it wasn't just yes in the moment. It wasn't just yes, I can be loved in this last supper, kind of picturesque. Leonardo da Vinci is going to paint a picture of it one day. John could be loved in all seasons, in all phases of his life. I want to show you three this morning very quickly. Uh, Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. The first question you need to ask yourself if you're going to be like John and be a disciple whom Jesus loved and know yourself as that is can you be loved when you fail? Can you be loved when you fail? Mark chapter 9. I love failure. Failure is my favorite. I'm sure it is your favorite as well. No, everybody hates failure. My real first taste of failure that I, I can really remember where it actually stung a lot uh, was in college. 
I had a college algebra class, and uh, anytime letters start getting introduced into math, like, I am out at that point. Like, I didn't sign up for that as a human being. You know, I don't need that when I'm counting money or counting my children, you know, one, two, and then I'm done. That's about all I need. Are we all here in the car? One, two, Amanda's here, three, four, here we go. You know, that's all I need. So when letters started getting introduced, I started getting out. And so I had a college algebra class because that's a requirement. They don't really give you the, you know, you can't option out of that if you want to do your degree. And so I went, but it was super boring, and, uh, and I was really in love with Amanda, so I would skip, like, whole weeks of school to come down here to Texas to visit her. I'm blaming her. See what I'm doing right now? I'm blaming her for my bad grades. And, uh, and so I didn't go to math a lot. Well, you know, algebra builds on itself. So after, like, the third class you've skipped, like, you are in serious trouble. So uh, the, co- the college I went to, you could take, you know, it cost whether you took 12 hours or you took 18 hours, it was the same price. And so I'd actually signed up for 18 hours that semester. And uh, the thing is, if you dropped it, it, it didn't, you didn't have to pay any extra for it. So within, like, Three weeks of the class starting, I already knew that there was no way that I could pass. Like, that's how bad I had done on the first test and all the homework by not doing the homework, is there was no way that I could actually pass this class. And so I had to do the walk of shame. I got in uh, to, I had skipped a class or two, and uh, don't do this. You're going away to college. This is bad advice. It worked out for me, but it probably won't work out for you. So go. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I walked in to class after I had missed a few classes, and he starts talking about stuff like I don't even understand the words that are coming out of his mouth, you know. And it's a two-hour class because it was a Tuesday-Thursday class, and I'm like, forget this. And so I get up in the middle of class, and I'm just like, peace. I'm out of here. Grace and peace to you. In Jesus' name, I'm going. Went right, straight to the registrar and dropped that thing because I failed. There's no way that I could pass. You've been there. Maybe it's a little bit more serious than that. Maybe you tried for a job. You didn't get it. Maybe you got let go from a job. Uh, maybe you, you know, tried to repair your house, and then it turns out you were terrible and did a bad job, and your wife is mad at you, and you had to call a uh, you know, repair man, and they, you know, you're doing the walk of shame to the front door to let them in. I mean, all of us have experienced uh, failure before, and um, sometimes it's funny, but most of the time it's not. Um, We are obsessed with perfectionism. It's what we're all striving for, especially in a culture like ours that we live out in here, uh, here in Cyprus, you know, like you can't even let your house go. Your house has to appear perfect. Nobody cares what it's like on the inside, but on the outside it has to appear perfect. We're obsessed with this perfectionism, and it gets ingrained into us from our earliest days, right? You know, day one, an A is better than a B, and a B is better than a C, and a C is better than a D, and a, and a D is better than an F. F's not even speakable in, in many of our homes. And, and so from day one, we strive for what's perfect. We'll settle for what's good, but we strive for what's perfect. And many of us can't feel loved when we fail, because we don't understand why anyone would love us when we fail. But John was not perfect. He's the one writing his gospel. He even will admit it in his story. But look at Mark. It tells a mistake that John made. Verse 38 of chapter 9. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him Because he was not following us. John says, listen, somebody was trying to do what you do and what we do a little bit. But somebody was trying to do what you do and they're not like in our club. They're not, you know, they're not with us. And look what Jesus said. Do not stop him. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. And so he just got corrected right there by Jesus in a way that everyone knew because someone else besides John is telling Mark, this is what happened. Now, how humiliating would that be? If you stepped out and you thought you were doing something right and then Jesus himself actually says, no, that's, that's wrong. You, you made a mistake. But he doesn't, John doesn't let his mistakes take, take over his identity. Let's do a little group therapy this morning because I'm feeling a little bit low about myself because um, I've already told you a bunch of stories about how I'm a failure. Let, let's just admit together because it makes me feel better. Um, just say, um, I, I'm not perfect. Can we do that? I'm not perfect. I mean, let's say it again. I'm not perfect. I mean, doesn't that feel good? I mean, it just feels good to, to, let it, to let it go. But can you add, I'm not perfect and I'm loved by God? Because that's true. What some of us are comfortable with is, I'm not perfect, but I'm loved by God. Because it's kind of like, I'm not perfect, but he, he still saved me. He still kind of swept in there and picked me up, even though I was worthless. But what if it's just, and I'm not perfect, and I'm loved by God. Both are true. We're so performance-driven that we have a hard time bringing our imperfection and the love of God into the same sentence. Listen, your failure, whether it's big, small, funny, or serious, is a chapter in your story. You can't get over it. Your failure, your mistakes, they are a part of your story, but it's not the whole story. It is a part of who you are, and it has made you who you are, but it is not the only thing that you are. See, when we know ourselves by our weaknesses, which is how many of us do, when you think about you, you think about what you're not good at, the things that you failed at. The things that you're imperfect at. That's how many of us see ourselves. And we just naturally assume that everyone else does too. That if you look in the mirror, like when I was in high school, and all I could see was pimples and acne, I just assumed that when everyone else looked at me, that's all they could see about me as well. And so when they thought about me, that was the first thing that they thought about. Because when I thought about me, that was the first thing that I thought about. So I don't know what you see in the mirror, what you think of when you think about you. But for many of us, it's our weaknesses, our mistakes, it's our imperfection. And we just naturally assume that's the way everyone else sees us, too. And we project that out onto God. That when he sees us, he sees 90 percent failure and 10 percent success. 90 percent of our weakness. He's has to. That's the lens through how he sees us and values us is through our weakness. And when we think that that's how God sees us. We don't crave closeness. We don't rush to the scripture. We don't rush to prayer because why do you want to rush to somebody who thinks that you are mostly not good? For some of us, we we would never think about having that kind of closeness that John had because we would be afraid that all Jesus would see when we came close is our failure, our imperfection, our weakness. But that's not how he sees us. If you can only be loved when you are perfect, you will lack the necessary backbone to persevere in this messed up world. If you can only feel loved by God when you have strung three or four, five, six, seven days together of righteousness, 
You'll never make it through this world. You need to be loved, and you can't let your drive for perfection prevent you from being loved by God. Turn to the page, Mark chapter 10. See, John's not perfect, but he, he knows he's loved. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Can you be loved when you've disappointed people? Can you be loved when you've disappointed people? Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so two brothers, that's our John, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Doesn't this sound like something that your little kids say to you or would have said to you? Listen, I'm going to ask you something, but I want, can you say yes right now before I ask it? I mean, that's essentially what they do in this story. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So what they're asking is, Jesus, we believe that you're going to be king. Now, they didn't understand at this moment that uh, it's a king of the whole world um, to come. Uh, It's the kingdom of God. They expected him to march into Jerusalem at some point in his lifetime, in their lifetime, and be king right there where they could see him feel him and experience him. And what they're asking is when you get into Jerusalem and you're sitting on a real throne there, can we sit at your right and your left? Meaning if you're going to be the king, can we be like the assistant kings? If you're going to be the the number one, can we be number two and 2A? That's what we we want. One of the other accounts of the Gospels retell this story, but they also said that they brought their mom. And they, they had their mom also asking for them. So you can imagine wanting something so bad that you bring your mommy along to ask. That's what James and John did in, in one of the other Gospels. And Jesus says this to them in verse 38. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Now, they weren't able. They didn't even know what they're talking about. They're just trying to say yes so they can get on to his yes to him giving them what they want. And, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, meaning the cup of suffering, with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So you can imagine being one of these other disciples and, and two of the people on your team go and they're trying to get a promotion ahead of you. You know, they're trying to just get in there first because all these people, and who wouldn't want to sit next to Jesus at the right and left in his kingdom, in his throne? I mean, that sounds even appealing to me right now. You know, like in heaven, you know, like, yeah, you get honor, you get promotion, you get authority. And these 10 are upset that James and John have tried to do this behind their back, even from the other gospel, bringing in their mom into the equation. And and they are unhappy, and they are disappointed, and they are mad and frustrated with James and John. Isn't it the worst when you know that someone is upset with you? Isn't that the worst feeling in the world? If you're a firstborn person, like, you can't live underneath that. Like, you just can't function uh, if somebody's mad. If you're, like, the fourth of, you know four children, you're probably like, I don't care. I just assume everyone is mad at me all the time. But for most of us, we don't like the feeling of somebody being disappointed in us, of us not meeting other people's expectations. This past week, I got an email from somebody wanting to get together. And, and you know, you know, 
things kind of trickle up the train uh, at a church. And, you know, so I had heard this frustration. And so I figured this conversation is not going to be like super fun. You know, this isn't going to be like, hey, how you doing? It's going to be a, hey, how you doing? What about this? You know, it's going to be like one of those things. And, and so I was already mad, you know, because I don't know, because I, I don't like disappointing people. I don't like people being disappointed. I don't like people not liking things. That's, I don't like that. I want everybody to be happy and get along, peace, love, and rainbows. That's what, you know, I want. And so um, I get this email. I'm going to have lunch with, you know, this person. And, and so uh, then uh, a little bit later that day, I go to this little park to pray. It's where I like to pray. And I got my headphones in. And I just walk around in the 100-degree heat and uh, really feel the spirit. And... Uh, and so I, I get out and I start praying, and, and, um, and so I started thinking about that email in my inbox and thinking about what's coming, and I'm like, oh, man. And so, so I just start imagining what it's going to be like. You ever do this? I'm like, and he's going to say that, and then I'm going to say this, and then, and then I'm, like, I'm having like this argument with myself in my mind where I'm me, and I'm also pretending to be this other person. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, you can't say that to me. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm the one saying that to me. Like, none of this is real. And I look down at my watch, and I've been doing this for 15 minutes. You know, why? Not because I'm really mad at this person, but I'm mad that he might be mad at me. You know, I'm frustrated that he might be frustrated with me or frustrated with something that, you know, I'm doing. Because we hate that feeling, don't we, when we disappointed others. And for many of us, if we know we've disappointed something, we can't do anything else in this life. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Listen, loving and needing other people's approval for you to be happy is a trap. It is a trap that you lay uh, subtly and that catches you later on down the line. It's a trap of idolatry. And think of all the things that we sacrifice to the approval of other people and to the opinions of other people. We sacrifice our happiness, our joy at the altar of approval. We sacrifice our confidence at the altar of other people's approval. We sacrifice parts of our personality and who we are and who God has made us to be at the altar of other people's approval. And all these things happen when we know ourselves as somebody who has disappointed someone. When we see ourselves as people who, someone who has let other people down. But listen, here's the great thing. You are loved by God. You are loved by Jesus, whether you are right in that thing or wrong in that thing. Listen, when you disappoint someone, you may have disappointed them and you may be wrong. We just always assume that I'm right and I'm never wrong, but that's not true. And it's not true for you either. You are sometimes wrong. But whether you're right or you're wrong, you're loved by Jesus. You know, it's not like he, you know, in his justice goes, what's just is you are right and you are wrong. That's just and he can see that, but he doesn't go because you are right. You get all of my favor and you get less of my favor because you're wrong. He doesn't treat us according to who's wrong or who's right. Can you be loved when you've disappointed people? Because John knew himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. And last and this is where we'll finish. John chapter 20. Can you be loved when you are afraid? Can you be loved when you are afraid?
This is what it says in verse 1. This is the story of Jesus' resurrection. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So at this point, they think maybe Jesus' body has been stolen. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Don't you love this? He had to be like, we raced and I won. It's not a big deal. I'm just letting you know. Footnote in history, we ran, I ran faster. He's a typical man. But then he's going to admit, he's going to admit something that doesn't make him look good. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And the face cloth, which, and then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which would have been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. So what happens is John gets there, he gets there first, but he peeks in and he's like, I ain't going in there. Now listen, I don't blame him. I mean, you're going to take a run through the graveyard today? No way. It's weird. It's dead people in there. And this wasn't, you know, cremation. This wasn't clean. This was just them the wrapping up their bodies, putting in the spices and putting them in there. So you didn't know when you ran into a tomb like this what you were going to see. So he looks in, but he doesn't go in. It's only when Simon Peter gets there a little bit slower, but a little bit braver. And he goes in and he's able to say to John, yeah, come on, come on, it's okay. Now listen, you think, well, who cares? Who cares if he was the first one, if he didn't have the courage to get in there? But listen, this was the most important news that he had ever heard. Jesus is potentially alive. And he didn't have the courage to see for himself. But he didn't let that fear define him. See, fear starts with a a genuine moment. A genuine moment, an emotion of fear. But it can quickly turn into an identity. I remember when I was six years old, I played on my very first basketball team. My parents signed me up late. Not that I'm bitter about it, but it really threw things off because it ended up being on a team of like people I didn't know. And it was like the friend of an uncle. And, and uh, I show up to the boys club. That's where the league was. And, and everybody else on the team, all these other six-year-old boys, boys they have their uniforms on and this this wasn't you know like oh you know it's the red one or the blue one or the black one this was like you go and get your own uniforms and you get a sponsor so they had nice black embroidered uniforms with the name of the sponsor on there and the number legit uniforms and I didn't have anything when I got there they're like we have a pair of shorts but we don't have a jersey for you I'm like oh oh, okay and so what they did is they went to the lost and found at the boys club and they found a black jersey and they handed it to me. Now, this was in the middle of the 1980s, and so I'm wearing some sweet blue Converse All-Stars. Got these nice pair of black shorts, and then I got a little kid's 
jersey that was thin and old. It was like, you know, when quilts get real soft because they're just so old. That was what this jersey was like. It had a number six and it had a one singular lightning bolt across it. Now you're thinking, oh, that man, that sounds super cool. I was totally humiliated because what that jersey said, and I had to wear it every time, is they belong and I do not. Now, it didn't keep me from loving basketball. It didn't keep me from liking that team. I ended up playing with those guys for many years to come, and I eventually got real uniforms the next season. But all season long, I wore that black uniform that they found in the Lost and Found. And listen, I carry a deep sense today of an awareness when I feel like I belong and when I don't. That was a singular moment of real anxiety. But I've carried it on as my identity. And so I never show up to a place that I'm not invited because I'm terrified of being somewhere that I don't belong. If I feel like I'm in a room where I don't measure up in some way, maybe I don't make a certain amount of money that they make. Maybe, you know, I have a a different occupation. And so when I'm sitting around with engineers and oil and gas people and construction guys, I don't really have anything to relate to that. And so when I feel like I'm in a circle where I don't belong, I can feel my personality shrinking up on me. I remember when it affected me one time, Amanda and I, it was that very first summer that we were dating, and she was so excited to take me to her college town. I'm not going to tell you which college town it was because I don't want any symbols or any noises coming out here for all of us people who didn't go to such schools. And, and so, uh, so anyway, so she's so excited to take me up. We're going to meet her roommates. It's going to be this awesome day. She's going to show me around her amazing college. And I was going to this very small religious school and this nowhere town in Missouri. Nobody had ever heard of it before. Here we are coming to her big university, and we're driving up to that place, and she's telling me all about it. 40,000 people come to this school, and it's this and this and football. It's this amazing thing. And all I'm starting to do math. I'm like 20,000 dudes running around this place, and they're all from Texas, and they wear boots, and they got trucks, and they lived on ranches, and I'm like this weird religious kid from Missouri, you know, Oh, man, she's, she's, what's going to happen is this is going to be summer love. And uh, because none of those guys have been around all summer, she's falling in love with me. But she's going to get back up to where the real men, real 18, 19, 20-year-olds are. No offense to 18, 19, and 20-year-olds in the room. She's going to get up there and be like, what was I doing? What was I messing around with that guy? Oh, man, I was wasting my time. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on. And so I could start. I was already down the road where she's already broken up with me. And we're just still in the car. And, uh, and I just shrank up because here I was, not just in a circle where I didn't belong, but I'm in a whole town, in a whole state where I don't belong. And we met her roommate. Her roommate thought I was the weirdest person on planet Earth because uh, she was trying to be kind. And I was like, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just a super weirdo. Uh, not because I am a weirdo. I don't think that's my personal opinion about myself. Because I, I was sure that I, there I was again. I was somewhere where I didn't belong. I was on the outside and everybody else was on the inside. And listen, some of those fears, they keep us from being loved by people. And, and it, was a real, it was a real singular moment of fear. But it built in, for many of us, a self-destruction button on our relationships. Can you be loved even when you're afraid? If you know yourself by your fears, those very real fears can turn into a destructive lifestyle. If you were overlooked once, You fear being overlooked and you can turn into a notice me lifestyle. You felt outclassed once 
So now you fear being outclassed. So you have turned into a look what I have person. You experienced the loss. And now you fear loss. And you've turned into an overprotective and overcautious person. And I'm thankful for 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, coming to our rescue when it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Yesterday, um, Amanda was hanging out with a friend last night because I, I do work for Sunday mornings on Saturday nights a lot. And, and so uh, I was putting the kids to bed, and, and I have this little routine where I, I like to tell Jackson before he goes to bed, and Annabeth, but specifically Jackson because I'm a boy and I relate to him in that way, um, tell him a few things. And when I tell him I love him, I want him to hear that every day from me. I tell him that uh, I'm glad that he's my son, and out of all the little boys in the world, he's the one that I would pick. And uh, the other thing that I like to tell him is that I'm proud of him. And so uh, yesterday, last night, I was being more specific. I'm proud of you for doing this and this and this. And uh, I love you. And, and he, he stopped me and he goes, Dad, would you love me if I was the opposite of all those things? Because I'm telling him, you know, that he's fun and he's cool and he's handsome. And he just says, Dad, would you love me if I was the opposite of all those things? And I asked him, uh, are you still my son? Because if you're still my son, then yes, I would love you, even if you were the opposite of all those things. That's the message today. The message today is it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we've overlooked all morning long that simple word, disciple. See, Jesus loved his disciples. And John was a disciple. So he took it to heart. It didn't matter what John did. It didn't matter that he made mistakes, which he did. We've read some today. It didn't matter that he disappointed people and upset people because we did. We read that today. It didn't matter that he wasn't always courageous and always brave and that he had fear just like we do. We saw that today. John was a disciple and Jesus loved his disciples and John took it personally. Can you be loved? Because you are loved. Even if you are the opposite, tomorrow morning you turned into the opposite of everything that you are today. You are still loved. Not based on what you do, but what you don't do. Jesus loved his disciples. You are a disciple. So take it to heart. Let's pray. We do receive your love this morning, Jesus. Not as just an overflowing emotion, but uh, we hear you today saying that we are protected, we are looked out for, we are respected, we are thought of, we are cared for, and we receive all of that today. So help us to be loved. It's all available to us today. Help us to take it to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Watch you stand to your feet. We're going to end our services today doing what we do every Sunday, which is we're going to worship together. And we also have a time of ministry and prayer. And so our ministry and prayer team members are here. Everybody look to your left. Locate them right in front of the TVs. Look to your right. You can see those folks standing right there. 
they're trained, they're ready, they want to pray for you. And so here's the thing today. Um, are you carrying something that's heavy, that's too heavy for you to bear alone? Come and pray. Is there somebody that you care about who's really going through it right now and you want to pray for them? Come and pray. Whatever God is putting on your heart, if you just need to just say, I, I need to receive the love of God, pray for me. That's, uh, that's what they're here for. Whatever's on your heart, they're here to pray. And uh, we'll worship together. Father, we pray that this time of ministry and prayer is powerful and effective. Pray that you would just give us a great sense of freedom here to love one another, to minister to one another through prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you come and pray, and let's worship together.